Go ahead and flip to Matthew 28 again. Matthew chapter 28. What I'm going to do is, uh, tonight we're calling this the great antithesis. The great antithesis. Antithesis being, you know, those opposing worldviews. And it's interesting, the story that he shared uh, with the restaurant owner, uh, because it was Cornelius Van Til who once said that if you give uh, an unbeliever enough rope, he'll hang himself in his own arguments. Because he is made in the image of God, and he can try all he wants to argue against the existence of God, but he's only sealing his own condemnation as he speaks. So, the great antithesis, let's read Matthew 28 again, and I will pray, and we will get to work. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's our emphasis tonight. Everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for giving us this opportunity to be here, to learn from your word, and to be challenged by what we find contained inside of it. Help us, Holy Spirit, to apply what we've seen and heard. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. amen. All right, the great antithesis. We've been looking at the Great Commission in some detail. We've been analyzing various aspects of the Great Commission, uh, trying to pull out meaning. We're trying to, my goal is to equip you. I'm trying to give you tools, intellectual tools, philosophical tools, so that you can do something with it. That's the goal. We want to equip the church for the task of carrying out the Great Commission. And I believe that this is a noble endeavor, one which requires some level of what we can call a prophetic imagination. God has given us a mind. We need to use it. Uh, use it in imaginative ways with regard to being creative and how we carry out the Great Commission. Being creative with how whatever you're studying in school is, is carried out into the future with whatever job or profession you are pursuing. We must not be crippled by what we see happening in the world. South Africa, we've talked about that a few times. Uh, things that I've described in my country and things that are happening in your country as well. We shouldn't be crippled by what we see happening. Rather, we must be diligent. We must be thoughtful and biblically inspired. We must not be lazy. We must not be slothful. And we certainly must not be unimpressed by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We must see the great challenge of discipling the nations for what it is. It's an insurmountable task that requires the authority of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if you look at the end of the Great Commission, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word is age there. And you might ask, well, how is Jesus Christ with us? Because eventually he did leave his disciples, did he not? He ascended back to heaven. But what did he promise? He would send a helper, an advocate, a lawyer, someone who can come to your help, to your aid, to your rescue, to guide you, direct you, to lead you, to give you 
uh, direction, to give you purpose, those sorts of things. So we need the authority of Christ and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the point. And all that is simply to say you can't do it on your own, so don't try. <laughs> now, tonight I want to focus on the great antithesis of history. The great antithesis of history. And again, an antithesis is simply a way to describe two opposing ideas or concepts. So when I say that there is a great antithesis, I'm suggesting that there is ultimately, there are ultimately two things that are at war with each other throughout all of human history. Two things that are at war with each other throughout all human history. And if you were a careful listener last night, I already told you what that antithesis is. History, which we know is governed by the authority and power and predestination of God, contains a great war between God and evil, or what we call sin. There's a war that's happening, and it's happening all around you. So it is not as though they are equal opposites, right? Far from it, the yin and yang, right? Some of, some of uh, Eastern religion has those types of concepts. They're not equal opposites. God is, Satan is not the equal opposite of God. Satan cannot do what God can do. Satan is a created creature who has the inability to know all things and be everywhere at once and those sorts of, sorts of things. So it's not as though they're equally opposite, but they are opposites nonetheless. All right? We call God holy, 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 right? He's the thrice holy God. We do not call anything Satan. We just call him a liar. <laughs> not a term of endearment for sure. So if what I'm arguing for tonight is true, and I believe it to be very biblical, and if our calling boils down to winning the battle for the minds of men and women and children, which it does, then it follows then that we must be diligent in understanding the antithesis of history so we can actually combat the opposing ideologies. Okay, does that make sense? We're supposed to win the battle for the minds of men, and we know the Word of God is true, then we have to be diligent. We have to know what those things are. In other words, this is what the book of Hebrews says. If you're going to be a mature Christian, you need to be able to discern between good and evil. That's the antithesis. You have to discern between good and evil. It's not enough to just let those in the, you know, the government, to they can decide what's good and evil, because half the time they don't even know. It's Christians, the church of Jesus Christ, disciples who know the commands of God, who are mature in the commands of God, who can discern between good and evil. That's the key. So remember what I said last night. I said this, the antithesis, or what we can call these opposing worldviews is between God and evil, or what you could say is the Lord Jesus Christ and Satan, or what we might even call righteousness versus unrighteousness. There is good, there is evil. There is holiness, there is sin. You see the difference? So there are many ways, you know, we can speak about antithesis, you know, injustice versus justice. Um... Objective ethics versus subjective ethics. That's a big discussion in my country. Um, do, does, does a person have the right to terminate the child in the womb? 
Objectively speaking, in God's ethical economy, no, you don't have the right, thou shalt not murder. But I talk to college students all the time. Well, you can think that, and that's fine. If you don't want an abortion, don't get an abortion, but I'm going to get my abortion. As if ethics are subjective, and you get to determine whatever you think. So, antithesis, we could talk about righteousness and unrighteousness, holy, unholy. We can also speak of the dominion religion, which is Christianity, versus the power religion. And the best classic case of that is Moses versus Pharaoh, which is also incidentally a great book by Dr. Gary North. And that's free online if you want it. So Moses is after the dominion religion. Pharaoh is after the power religion. He wants control. He wants to manipulate. He wants to oppress the Israelites, and not let them go to worship Yahweh out in the uh, wilderness, right? That's dominion, that's dominion versus power religion. We could, also, we could also frame this great antithesis between service and selfishness. Did not Jesus stoop low to wash his disciples' feet? Uh... I don't know any politicians in my country, probably yours too, that go around doing such things. Service versus selfishness. We could talk about King Jesus versus the, uh, the pretend kings of man, the pretend kingdoms of man. God versus Satan. We, we've also talked about this, man's law versus God's law. You get the picture. There's an antithesis in history. And the reason that you need to be able to tell the difference is because you and I are called, according to the Great Commission, to teach the nations everything that Christ has commanded. So that's the focus of the passage tonight. We are teaching men and women and children whose minds are at odds with Christ to obey what Christ has commanded. We are not teaching them to obey things that man has commanded. That's the wrong side of the antithesis. In fact, as we'll see shortly, and as I'll probably look at more in more detail on Sunday, we have a duty and a responsibility to disobey unjust laws, like the Hebrew midwives. Remember when Daniel was told not to pray? What did he do? He went home and prayed, but there's one detail that's there that you and I shouldn't miss. He opened all the windows. And he prayed. Why? Because that was an unjust law, and I'm going to show you just how much I'm going to disobey it. He opened the windows so that everyone could see he was praying when Nebuchadnezzar said, do not pray. Or when uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow down to the statue. What did they do? They stood there. That is godliness. That's being on the right side of the antithesis. So not only do we have a duty and a responsibility to disobey unjust, unbiblical, ungodly, unrighteous laws, we also have a responsibility to see to it that we are undermining those things, actively undermining it at every turn. That was the abolitionists during the slave trade in America, abolitionists who said no. That's abolitionists today, of which I am one, against abortion and other societal sins and evils. We want to abolish those things because they're unjust. Now, 
In order to teach the nations to obey what Christ has commanded, it goes without saying that we have to know what it is Christ commanded, right? You have to sort of know those things. We have to know the inner workings of the gospel of the kingdom of God. We must know deeply the law of God. Okay? Do you... <laughs> I wonder if this is the case here. And you don't have to raise your hand. I don't want to put you on the spot. But I know in, my, in the case of the church in America, by and large, doesn't really understand the Old Testament. In fact, um, anybody tried to read through the Bible in a year? Anybody's ever tried? That's a big thing. I mean, usually what happens, though, is the new year hits. Everybody has their New Year's resolutions. Well, I'm going to lose weight this year. Or I'm going I'm to do this, that, and the other. And what happens is they say, I'm going to read the Bible. And so they get through January, and they read the book of Genesis, and they may get through Exodus, and then they hit Leviticus, and then the first few chapters are about all the burnt offerings and they quit because it seems boring. I mean, how detailed do we need temple offerings? Well, there's a reason for that, and that's beyond our scope for tonight, but there's a reason. So we have to know the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the Word of God. It's still the Word of God, just like it is in the New Testament. So we need to know. We need to know what it is Christ has commanded. We need to know the law of God. We need to know the ethics of God's word. We need to know how to discern between good and evil. That's what a mature Christian does. And we need, we need to know how the gospel of the kingdom fights that which is in opposition to it. We are not a passive religion. We are all about peace and nonviolent means to de-escalate tension and oppression and things like that. But we have a biblical argument for defending ourselves. Uh, Exodus 22 talks about that. So we have um, an ethic, and we need to know what it is. And really, though, this is the big thing. It does absolutely no good to send missionaries across the world if they don't know what it is they're supposed to be teaching. Because it's far more, let me tell you, your Christianity means far more than you just going to heaven when you die. See, you can't send a missionary to America, which as I've said, we need them desperately. You can't send a missionary to America if he's unable to spot matters of idolatry and injustice. If a missionary doesn't know the law of God, doesn't know how the gospel of the kingdom stands in stark contrast to those pagan things, then he is incapable of, of building what we call a social order that reflects the principles and values of the kingdom. He, he's incapable. He's inept. He doesn't know. And, and building a social order, which is what the church is, that is absolutely part of the call of the Great Commission. I look at your church here, and, and we were speaking a little bit earlier about this, and just it's fascinating you guys are going to do prison ministry soon, uh, next week, I believe. I wish I could stay to join you, because I would love to do that. I've done that in America. And, and I applaud you for doing that. I praise God that you're doing that, because not many people are willing to go into those places. Um, that's a social order. You guys have a community here. There, there's giving. There's serving. I mean, that's, that's what the church does. And, and your job isn't to go into the prison and just say, 
well, dear sir, I hope that you ask Jesus into your heart so that you can go to heaven when you die, and then you leave, and that's the only thing you say. How is that good news? It's good news in the long run, but how is that good news now? What's the gospel mean for me today? So all of that's simply to say that we need to know the objective truth and the facts of the gospel, and then we need to know how those facts work themselves out. In other words, what is their purpose? What is the reason for our confession of faith? And then third, we need to understand the qualitative nature of how the gospel is implemented in real time. So we need to know the facts of the gospel, you need to know the purpose of the gospel, and you need to know the nature of how the gospel functions and works itself out. So, I didn't come this far to leave you hanging, I'm going to explain those things, because I think they're important. So, what is the objective, unvarnished truth of the gospel of the kingdom? I'm going to give you six things, okay? And these are basically doctrinal confessions. Number one. Creator versus creation. Creator versus creation. God is the sovereign covenant Lord. He is the creator. Who are we? We are the creation. We are the creatures, we could say, right? Now that's not, I'm not really being that controversial, am I? That's Genesis chapter one verse and, and chapters one through three. God's the creator, we're the creation. And being the covenant Lord who has initiated all things, we must know our place in relationship to him, and we must know the calling he has on our lives. So what is that calling? Number two, dominion. Now I'm not going to stand up here and hoot and holler and talk about dominion and how God wants you to be rich and healthy because God may actually want to be poor, broke, and sick all the time. He might. I mean, if Jesus was poor, broke, he wasn't necessarily sick, but homeless, why would you expect anything more than that? Dominion. We are called, according to Genesis 1, 26-28, to fill the earth and subdue it, which means we are to take the earth and make it productive and useful for the kingdom of God. All right? Those are key words there. Productive and useful for the kingdom of God. Uh, this has many facets to it, of course, but individual purpose some of you may be great at math, and your job is to be an accountant and do taxes and help people in that regard. So you have an individual purpose. That's part of the dominion mandate. Strong, godly families and relationships. Heaven help us. Our divorce rate is out of control in the United States. Strong, godly families are the backbone to any society. You're not going to have a society when you have adultery and divorce and abortion. It's going to crumble. So that's part of dominion. Economic prosperity and honesty in business transactions. Being honest with one another. Not trying to get a little extra on the side for you by deceiving someone. That's part of the dominion mandate. What about just weights and measures? Money. That's part of the dominion mandate too. 
Money is just how we function as a society. It's a medium of exchange, right? It's what we use. We, we hold up a hundred dollar or a hundred kwacha, and we assume that it's going to mean something when we go to the store. Civil government that upholds justice and righteousness when dealing with criminals. That's part of the dominion mandate as well. I'm hearing things, more developments down in Joburg and different things that are happening. And, and it's just, you know, different leaders have called out, and especially in Africa. I don't know if my president said anything. He might be too busy doing other things. And I don't mean that as a good thing. <laughs> Uh, other leaders have basically, you know, condemned these acts, uh, the xenophobic acts, and you know all these all these things. But where's the pressure on South Africa to get it together? Because the police, as far as I can tell, a lot of them aren't doing anything. That's injustice. That's a gospel issue. That's a dominion issue. Well, churches who are evangelizing, planting other churches, making disciples, so on. That's all of that is part of dominion. Number three. Sin and salvation. What do we mean as Bible-believing Christians about sin and salvation? Well, man has rebelled against God, therefore he needs God in order to be restored to God. No mere man can restore you to God. The man Jesus Christ can do that. That's our confession. See, Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Savior that can give man the salvation. Listen, dealing fully and finally, with sin on the cross and through the resurrection, and not just that, blessing man with a new covenantal status of freedom to carry out those purposes. Um, I may touch on this Sunday. I'm not sure yet. I'm still sorting through that. Um, but the issue of the law, I, I, I spoke with one of you um, who was reading that book, the Faith and Obedience book. If you didn't get one, make sure you get one tonight. And he was reading it, and he thought, well, this is great, because it actually gives meaning and purpose to a lot of things, especially when you think of the law of God. Because most people don't think there's any purpose for the law of God. That was then, this is now. That was Old Testament Israel, this is now. But the reality of the situation is, when you died, you, all of us need to die. Why? Because the wages of sin is death, right? The wages of sin is death. God's not just if you get off scot-free. Is God just if he looks at your sin and says, ah, it's no big deal? No way. There has to be a penalty. And the question is, where's your penalty? And the answer is, Jesus Christ and him crucified. You died with Christ. You died to the condemnation of the law. The law condemns us because we can't obey it perfectly. But guess what happened? Sunday morning happened. Friday he died, Sunday he rose. And what came out of the tomb with him? Us. We have risen in Christ. Paul says we've seated with him in the heavenly places. What's Christ is yours. Okay? What belongs to him has been given to you. You are in him. You are restored. Now you're no longer condemned in the, God, in the, in the law. You have a right relationship with the law now. That's the difference. Fourth, incarnation. Incarnation and ascension. We confess that Jesus became a man 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Spirit didn't become a man. The Father didn't become a man. The eternal Son became a man. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was born. And then, of course, we know that He ascended too. Incarnation and ascension. Jesus became a man in order to atone for sin. Jesus was raised a true resurrected man. And now this man sits on David's throne in the heavens, ruling and reigning and putting His enemies under His feet. Incarnation and ascension. Number five. Revelation and authority. You want to know the facts of the Gospel. These are the facts of the Gospel. Number five, revelation and authority. Listen, God has revealed His perfect will to man in His Son and in His Word, which the Holy Spirit inspired. This Holy Spirit inspired, perfectly authoritative Holy Bible. Friends, this, this right here, when someone says, where is your authority? If no pastor can confess that his authority rests solely in the Word of God, he might be a hireling and not a shepherd. No one in this room has authority higher than this book. No one. Your authority rests in the Word of God. See, God has given us His laws in His Word in order to carry them out in obedience to every single area of life. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll do what? Think nice thoughts about me? If you love me, you'll sing my praises on Sunday. If you love me, you will have your Bible with you 24-7, sleep with it under your pillow. No, He said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Which means that any authority can only be true authority to the degree that it aligns with the Bible. I do not stand in my own authority. I have none. I can't conjure it up. Politicians like to stand on their own authority. They have none other than what the Bible gives them. Number six, responsibility and judgment. Responsibility and judgment. Responsibility and judgment. Man is responsible to God in every area of life, and therefore, given God's complete and unending authority, he is accountable to God in every area of life. Do you see the train of thought? Adam and Eve were responsible with working and keeping the garden. What happened when their irresponsibility took over? They were accountable to the God of the universe. See, all men, women, and children in Zambia and in all nations are, are to respond positively to God's summons to obedience. We are summoning people to obey Christ, to order the affairs of their lives in accordance to God's principles and commands and laws. That's what we're doing. That's the Great Commission. And while exercising proper judgment in the world, God can be expected God can be expected to pour out His covenant blessings as we mature, as we work, and we labor for the kingdom. There are blessings attached to nations that obey God. There are curses attached to nations that disobey God. See, these are all, these six things, these are the facts 
of the gospel of the kingdom. And that's not even like a completely exhaustive, you know, you could write a thousand page book on these and not even exhaust it probably. But these are the facts of the gospel of the kingdom God of God. They are unchanging. They're irreducible. And they're uncompromising. We cannot explain them away. We cannot wish that these things weren't so. We can't even ignore them because guess what? You live on God's earth breathing God's air. You're welcome. We cannot escape from the commands of Christ, nor should we want to. Why? Because God punishes all evildoers. Psalm chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Now, having addressed these objective truths of the kingdom, we must now understand how these truths work themselves out. Because it's one thing, right? We can affirm. All of you, most, I think every one of you, when I held this up and said, this is your authority, you nodded and said, amen. You believe this. But what's the thing about belief that's difficult to navigate? It's in here. Your heart's changed, no doubt. Faith is, faith comes by hearing that sort of thing, right? Hearing by the word of God. The just shall live by faith. There's all these passages of scripture. But the difficulty is it's stuck in your mind. You, you can't actually, well, I guess you can. You're a hypocrite if you do. But you can affirm something up here and then your hands just can't quite get it together. I know murder is wrong, but I'm going to do this. <laughs> Something has to go from what your heart and your mind in working in concert and, and, and how that flows out into your life. So how do these truths work, work themselves out? What's the purpose of these things? What's the purpose? What's the goal of Jesus becoming man? What's the goal of our responsibility towards God? Well, simply put, we must assert the gospel of the kingdom. We have to assert the gospel of the kingdom. I mean including but not limited to all those six principles, we have to assert the gospel of the kingdom in the world you have to assert the gospel of the kingdom in the world challenging every philosophy every idea every system Assert the gospel of the kingdom in the world, challenging every philosophy, every idea, every system of thought and action with Christ's gospel. Challenging all those philosophies, all those ideas, all those systems of thought and action with Christ's gospel. None of you are dualists. Well, you shouldn't be. <laughs> you shouldn't think I'm a spirit stuck inside this trap of a body and I can't wait to escape off the earth for God to just zap us away. You can't think like that. You are a whole body. You have a whole gospel for that whole body. So you're thinking, you're feeling, you're doing. All of it needs to be aligned. And our goal with the kingdom is to take that out there into the world fighting against every bad philosophy, taking down Marxism, communism, taking down injustice, and doing it with Christ's gospel. In other words, look, we weren't given the gospel so that we could just think about it and contemplate about it from time to time. We're supposed to do something with it. Listen to 2 Corinthians 
10, 3 through 5. You can write it down. This is a, an amazing passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. And I will read it for you. You don't have to turn there, though. Of course, you're welcome to. Indeed, we live as human beings in the flesh, but we do not wage war according to human, that is, fleshly standards. For the we- Notice he's assuming we wage war. We do not wage war according to fleshly standards. Right? Like killing migrants who we think may take our job. That's fleshly standard. We don't do that, Paul says. For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, fleshly, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy, again, you know, this is, church is about being nice, looking fancy, right? All this destroying talk. My goodness, Paul. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Have you heard that verse before? You know what I've heard about that verse before? You're supposed to just take any thought that you have coming into your mind and take it captive to Christ. But you know what Paul's teaching us? Certainly it includes taking your thoughts captive, but it's taking other people's thoughts captive. It's a war. It's a war of antithesis. Your job is to take other philosophies that are out there in the world that don't align with Scripture, you're supposed to take them captive. You're not to be taken captive. We don't do that. Right? Our, our gospel message is, hey world, resistance is futile. Bend the knee to Christ now or He will bend it later. See, when Paul says that we destroy strongholds and arguments and proud obstacles, he means to say that the Christian gospel of the kingdom of God takes the axe to the root of all idolatry. It takes the axe to the root. We don't fight like the world fights. And how does the world fight? You know, a surface, you know, petty crimes, theft. A young man who I'm uh, Facebook friends with, I've never met him in life, but he's an abolitionist friend of mine, and he's been traveling. He was in Johannesburg a couple days ago. He got mugged, nearly died. Um, These men, uh, they took his iPhone, they took his credit cards. Thankfully, his most expensive stuff, like a laptop, was in his backpack. They didn't, he was walking, and this tall man, like, choked him from behind. He couldn't breathe or yell out. And these other men came and, and, and robbed him. I mean, you know, there's a lot of bad words that I could say about this. <laughs> Petty, stupid. God will not let those actions go unjudged. Either, either they will be judged in Christ and be made new, or they will stand before the judgment seat of God And he will condemn them to hell. That's how the world fights, though. This surfacey fight, this top down power, force, oppression. But that doesn't mean we don't fight at all. We don't, Paul's not saying, no, 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 we don't fight at all. He says we do fight, but we have a qualitative difference in our fighting. We are not vengeful, we pray for our enemies. Do you pray for your enemies? Are you praying? 
for those in South Africa who are encroaching upon your nation through murder, through muggings, through things like that. Uh, we are not, we're not spiteful or petty. We serve one another in love. Well, we don't hang on to bitterness. We confess our sins to God and we love each other. We serve each other in love, which is my family's uh, verse from Galatians. See, but what is, what is clear from this text is that the gospel does something in the world. It doesn't just save souls for heaven. It breaks the bonds of institutional slavery and oppression, and it destroys systems and obstacles that all go against the knowledge of Christ. If it is a true gospel, if it is an ultimately authoritative gospel, and if it is a gospel whereby men and nations and institutions are ultimately judged, then we can conclude it is a gospel that must be boldly proclaimed, uncompromisingly declared, both individually and nationally. See, we've covered the objective truths of the gospel of the kingdom. We've covered the purpose of it. What is, what is the purpose of the gospel? The purpose of the gospel is to go into the world and claim it all for Christ. But what about the nature of how it's implemented? Because even that sounds good too, right? I, I agree with you, Pastor Mutale. You should take the gospel into the world. Okay, I'm with you. But how? And that's what we're going to cover the rest of the night. If our desire is to heal the nations, and that is precisely what the gospel does, then we need to have a certain strategy that is altogether unpopular these days, and that strategy is the category of judgment. Judgment is a bad, bad, bad word in America. You're not supposed to judge each other. Jesus said, judge not, right? Actually, what he was saying was, judge correctly. Take the log out of your eye before you judge the speck in your brother's eye. And then later, later in chapter 7 of Matthew, he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. <laughs> you have to judge when to not do that. He's not saying not to judge. Judgment. If you have a wound, it might require the sting of an ointment. If you need surgery, it might require a scalpel which cuts the skin. In other words, the gospel brings healing, but before it brings healing, guess what it does? It brings judgment. See, the, the nature of the gospel is what we call covenantal. All right, which is to say that there is this ethical, these are two words you need to know. Covenantal, but what do we mean by covenantal? There's an ethical and a judicial aspect to it. Okay? The, the Bible is an ethical and a judicial document. It's a covenantal document that God has given to reveal himself and tell us what to do and how to obey him. Okay? There are ethics involved. So with regard to ethical, there are ethics. There are right versus wrong, correct? Right versus wrong. But then there's this judicial aspect. There's this law that's involved. There's something that's just or unjust. And I get this because the book of Psalms tells us what is the foundations of God's throne? Justice and righteousness. Ethics and a judicial. That's where we get this from. So let me, let me illustrate. <clears throat> in my country, we have unjust laws that put people in prison. We have a very, 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 very high incarceration rate. A lot of people are in jail. 
Now, most of these, I'd have to go double check the numbers, but a lot of these are nonviolent crimes that usually have something to do with a drug substance. Okay, my nation is not uncommon for a white police officer, it could be a black police officer, pulling over a black man and um, planting a substance on him. Now, there was just another video that came out about that. <laughs> Oh, you have uh, uh, cocaine. You have drugs on you. And he's like, no, I don't. Oh, we found it. Yeah, because you put it there. This stuff happens. I'm not making this up. It happens. Now, if it, how do we preach the gospel in this situation? How do we take the facts and the purpose and then do something with it? And, and it, if the gospel is going to be preached, it's going to have to be brought into conflict with an unjust system. The proud obstacle we are called to destroy. There has to be a place where the good news of the kingdom affects something that's happening out there. In other words, before healing can happen, what needs to happen? The scalpel has to be applied. Before the gospel can fix an unjust system like what we have in America, our prison system, it has to bring conflict. It has to address the injustice. It has to judge these things. And you, Christian, you are called to judge these things. In fact, if I were to ask you, let's do this. I don't have my notes. Flip to 1 Corinthians 2 real quick. I referenced this already. If I were to ask you what a spiritual person is, you, you might tell me, well, someone who prays a lot, someone who reads their Bible a lot, someone who sings well, serves a lot. You know what the Bible says a spiritual person is? <laughs> Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. Those who are spiritual, what? Discern or judge all things. What? <laughs> What does it mean to be spiritual? Read your Bible, pray a lot, you know, all these things. No, 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 no. The spiritual person, the person whose life is captured by the Holy Spirit of God is a person who judges, the Greek word is anakrino, who assesses, who judges, who discerns, who looks at all things and discerns whether or not they are good or whether or not they are evil. See, if God's word is the final authority, and it is, then it follows that those things that run contrary to the word of God must be confronted in order for the healing to take place. See, we don't need to apologize for pulling the sheet down, revealing the nakedness of the system, of the injustice. We don't have to apologize for that. Remember, we are trying to heal. That's the goal, right? The goal is the healing of the nations. We are trying to heal. But in order to heal, we need to challenge the death that enslaves and impoverishes men. What are those things that are oppressing us? What are, what are the things that are challenging us? We need, we need to expose evil, which is what Paul says to do in, in Ephesians. We need to expose evil in order to demonstrate the far superior system of the kingdom of God. We expose the evil with the intention on showing people that the sin is far worse than they think. You, 
look, this situation in South Africa, which I know it's ongoing, but this latest issue, they don't realize how devastating it is. They don't understand. Did the, did the Romans have any clue as to how devastating it was to crucify the Messiah? Of course, Paul says everywhere, if they had known, they wouldn't have done it. They don't know. And we need to expose that wickedness and show how bad it is. And only in exposing are we able to deal with it. See, the church is called to be militant in our assault against these lofty speculations and strongholds. We need people to see the sham that is man's law. We need people to be exposed to the riches of God's grace over against the chains of man's wrath. As, as our passage indicates, the battle for the hearts and minds of men is going to be fought in the trenches of injustice and systemic oppression. That's where the fight's going to be. It isn't going to be fought primarily in our churches where we gather and we sing and we smile and we look nice and we dance a little bit and we pray. Sometimes there is a fight. <laughs> Sometimes there's a fight simply to get Christians to wake up and get involved in these matters. But the primary battle is going to be fought out there in the streets, in businesses, at universities, at the civil government. That's where the battle is going to be. Now, the gospel doesn't just deliver us from the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. Know that. It doesn't just deliver us from the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. It delivers us from the dominion of man. What happened as soon as Cain was able to locate a rock? What did he do to his brother Abel? Killed him. He killed him. Cain killed Abel. This is the dominion of man over other men. See, apart from the gospel of grace, man will always try to concoct his own gospel, what we can call the false gospel of man's wrath. Not God's grace, man's wrath. And all of this is because Satan desires to copy God's ways, yet he turns them inside out, he co-ops them, and he maligns them for his evil purposes. You recall 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. According to that verse, Satan is the god of this world or age, which is simply the system of evil that runs contrary to God. He is the god of all that is rebellious to God. Now, like God, Satan has a gospel, but it's a gospel of autonomy, of self-law, whereby men can always be a law unto themselves. Like God, Satan's gospel of the kingdom of evil contains blueprints for every area of life. <clears throat> Satan desires to rule the nations, even trying once, if you recall, to sell the deed to the nations to Jesus. Do you remember the temptation? But Jesus wasn't interested. Satan's evil schemes are centered on getting the church to believe false doctrine in order to keep them impotent and busy. And notice what 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says the intention of Satan is. Blinding the minds of unbelievers. Satan, is, Satan in his accompanying system of evil and unrighteousness wants to direct man's view of reality. Do you think it makes Satan mad that a friend of mine was mugged in Joburg? 
He loves it. He loves that stuff. He loves it when nations meddle in the affairs of other nations. He absolutely loves what's happening in Johannesburg. He loves it. Because he's trying to control and direct man's view of reality. If Satan can... If Satan can get men thinking false things about power, false things about authority, purpose, and dominion, then he can use this to control political systems too. But Satan, the strong man, has been tied up. Jesus is plundering. He's paraded in the streets as a conquered foe. And Satan is no longer able to successfully blind the nations from the preaching of the gospel. You need to understand that Satan is a defeated enemy. If you're trying to understand the antithesis of good and evil, you should know that evil really isn't even that powerful. You know the verse in Isaiah, no weapon formed against you shall stand or shall prosper. Why is it that no weapon, of form, uh, why is it that no weapon formed against you shall prosper? Because God is the one that tells that weapon how far it is allowed to go. We're not finished, though. Satan desires to copy. Satan desires to copy God's blueprints for winning the nations, but his ultimate, goal, his ultimate goal is to destroy them. Which means that Satan, he needs to take what belongs to God and distort it. Like God's covenant, Satan has a chain of command. Satan is this supposed sovereign power. Demons go and do his bidding. Like God, Satan has a law word and he has oaths that go with it. He also has a plan for the nations being saturated with the gospel of man's wrath. In other words, what God has, Satan tries to have, but he wants an evil version of it. And Christians today, they don't even think of the Great Commission being this dominion of Christ in every area of life across the world. They don't think that's the, that we don't, we don't, they don't think we should do that. But guess who thinks he should do the exact opposite? Satan. And according to the book of Revelation, and in other places, there are two primary ways, two primary ways Satan ins, intends to enslave man. Number one, false religious systems. False religious systems. It's one of Satan's most favorite tactics. False religious systems. You want to know how Satan intends to oppress and enslave and seek, kill, and destroy? Number one, false religious systems. Number two, false political systems. Regarding the first thing, false religious systems, Satan's goal is to get man to worship, worship himself out of accountability to God. So when you have a friend who grew up in the church and he, he or she walks away from the faith and they are you know, pursuing money and pleasure and all these things, that person is trying to worship himself out of accountability to God. This horrible system bears the fruit of Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism was the ancient heresy that man cares only about the spiritual and not the material. And it also is the heresy of environmentalism. Man's social engineering can produce a better version of man. That's what Karl Marx tried to do. That's why we had the rise of Hitler. That's why we've had communist Russia. It's all connected. Do you see? 
these religious systems infiltrate Christianity and they bring them to ruin and destruction so long as Christians embrace them and choose not to fight against them. Regarding the second thing, false political systems, Satan's goal is to use power and coercive measures to oppress man and keep him under the boot of tyranny. That's his aim. And we ought to... What, what else... What else can we say about Hitler's work in Germany, Nazi Germany? Was that not tyranny? Is it not tyranny that my country's killing 65, 70 million babies in 40 years? Satan's goal is to use power and coercive measures to oppress man and keep him under the boot of tyranny. This horrible system bears the fruit of totalitarianism, right? Absolute rule by absolute oppression. And it also bears the fruit of socialism, removing individual liberty at the expense of the greater collective. See, Christianity, in contrast to these false systems, offers up a better system the kingdom of God. In the gospel of the kingdom, we have sound doctrine, which expresses itself both in religious practices and political practices. Our sound doctrine, the facts of the gospel, works itself out in how we interact with each other, how we interact as we try to govern ourselves. It's God's law which combats tyranny, and it does so by holding up individual responsibility and accountability to God. It's God's law that fights for justice over against man's insistence on injustice. It is Christ and him crucified, which is folly to the wisdom of the world, that delivers man from the dominion of man. Now, I, I want to wrap up our time by showing the connection between injustice and idolatry because I really want you to understand this. This is very important to me. There is a connection of injustice and idolatry in how it relates to the Christian faith. If you can get this, you are far ahead of American Christians. Every occasion of injustice is a case of idolatry because injustice is the violations of God's law and idolatry is the refusal to obey God's law. Sin being the sin of omission and commission, right? Sin can be you doing something you're not supposed to do, but it can also be you not doing something you're required to do. My friend who was mugged, there were people in South Africa who saw it happen. They did not intervene. If I was there, I would have... Yeah. Because thou shalt not murder, that's the negative part of the law. What's the positive? Protect life. So remember, there's this ethical, that's the right and wrong, and judicial, that's just or unjust, nature to God's law. See, injustice is the breakdown of some element of, of the judicial function of God's covenant law, right? When there's, when there's a breach on the judi judicial side of law, right, the, that's the unjust thing, there is, by default, a breach on the ethical side of God's law as well. When there's a breach on both sides, we have idolatry. That's the connection. There are idols being worshipped in South Africa. There are idols being worshipped here. There are idols being worshipped in my country. 
a man who was robbed and beaten was a victim of a breakdown in obedience to God's law. This was a judicial breakdown in that it is against God's law to steal, right, and do violence to someone. It's also an ethical breakdown because it is idolatry, because the, the perpetrator worshipped and served the creation and not the creator. And the difficulty of seeing this cannot be overstated. By and large, Christians are unable to discern between good and evil, and because of it, they are often on the wrong side of the justice debate. Because you will have people in your country, and they're in mine, that are going to tell you that what I'm saying tonight, nonsense. God doesn't care about politics. He cares about the church, and that's it. And to that, I would say, that's nonsense. Part of the reason, part of the reason that, that Christians do not see is because they're unwilling to see. People who do not see injustice are either, one, they're unknowingly privileged, and thus they, you know, their lives are free from injustice. They just don't experience it. Maybe they have a ton of money. They live in this crazy place where there's, just, you know, there's no crime. They have all the security cameras that, that you could want. They are so far gone from injustice that they don't see injustice. But, but there's a second part. The reason maybe we don't see injustice is because we are knowingly privileged. Well, I know I'm rich, and I know I can change things. And thus, because of that, we are participants in these power structures that, that perpetuate injustice. It's the difference between I'm rich, and I can afford to protect my family, and I don't ever, ever, ever have cases of injustice happen to me, or... I'm rich, and I don't care that there are people on the street that are oppressed, and I don't believe I have any responsibility to my image-bearing neighbor to do anything about it. That's the difference. And this is why it's so difficult to wade through the experience of others. We lack empathy for the plight of others. And then we have to ask ourselves, why is that the case? Why is it so difficult for people to have empathy towards those who are suffering abuse, who are suffering oppression, who are suffering injustice. And I'll tell you why. It's very simple. Because injustice and idolatry go hand in hand. Because of that, we need to keep in mind the relationship of law and religion. See, if, if a God is manifested, he's manifested in the law of society. And if that's the case, and it is, then it follows that there is no way, there's no possible way we can have injustice while worshiping and obeying the true God of the Bible. Because if our God is properly situated, and we are properly in obedience to him, we are going to treat each other the way the Bible says we should. And when there's a case of injustice, the civil magistrate is supposed to step in who, who are the ones that were um, committing murder? Why aren't they getting the death penalty? So that all will fear. And because they don't and they get away with it, everybody thinks that they can participate. And then it just keeps going and going and going. See, only when we seize all obedience to God do we then reap a harvest of injustice. Only when we seize obedience to God do we then reap a harvest of of injustice. 
See, think about it with idols. If you want the idol bad enough, you're going to do whatever you want to get it, right? If you want that idol, you're going to pursue it no matter what. But listen, you better be prepared to eat the unjust systemic fruit of the idol as well. But don't, don't forget this, though. Idols, they don't care about you. They don't care about you. Their concern and care for you is very, very minimal. Christianity is a religion of confession, a religion of faith. Pagans and idols, they don't mind your thoughts being focused on Jesus. Because they're not even real gods. They don't know what you're thinking. They don't care. But they start to mind the moment you as a Christian speak. When you confess. When you declare what Jesus is Lord. See, our profession and confession shapes the world around us. Think about, I know this happened in Nigeria as well. What would have happened if these things happened in South Africa and no one said anything? No one. No, no one took to the streets. No one demanded their politicians speak up and address the issue. No one demanded to put pressure on the South African government. No one said a thing. Do you think the idol will be content? Yeah. The idol would be absolutely content. The injustice would be content. But the minute you speak, the minute you speak, the minute you profess and confess, that shapes the world. It changes the world. Whatever, whatever it is we confess, we live. We live in light of our confession. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, but you live like the world, what is your confession? Not Jesus Christ. Your confession is an idol that you have concocted in your heart, and you have a problem. So, so the fruit has to be consistent with the type of tree it is, which means, as a friend of mine has said, a confession that Jesus is Lord will ultimately mean a deconfession of idols. When you confess that Jesus is Lord, you are abandoning other idols. I think I said this the other night with Rome. They didn't care that the early Christians worshipped Jesus. Jesus was just another god in the pantheon. They started to care when they worshipped Jesus and only Jesus. And then they started to really care when they worshiped Jesus and said that Caesar's not Lord. He's not the Son of God. He does not have full authority. He does not possess the authority that Jesus Christ our King possesses. When we confess that Jesus is Lord and we declare the supremacy of His gospel, we are on the right side of this great antithesis of history. And not only that, our confession that Jesus is Lord also comes with a deconfession. Caesar is not, the state is not, the idol is not, man is not, Jesus Christ is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time again tonight. I thank you for those who came on a Friday evening, who chose to be here. I'm just, I ask your blessing on them. That their minds would be shaped, their hearts challenged by your spirit. I'm humbled and honored to be back in Zambia, and I'm thankful for these dear brothers and sisters. So may you get the glory. 
And may the nations be one for the sake of Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.